Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Steve Klaveski, who's the author of the book, Time Rich, subtitled, Do Your Best Work, Live Your Best Life. We spoke about all things work, the history of work, the current problems with work, how we can fix work for the future, a bit of personal productivity stuff. And you can grab his brand new book, Time Rich, at the website, timerichbook.com. Yes, it's a bit of an undervalued currency time compared to money. So, we're going to learn about all the ways we can get it back. And make sure you listen to the end. There's going to be an old-fashioned song <laughs> that comes in. Maybe not from us, maybe from Big Steve-O. <laughs> Stay tuned. Well, Steve-O, in your podcast, Future Squared, you always like to start off with an interesting question. I thought I'd try and, I'd try and get one, but okay. uh, how's lockdown been with your best mate, Jerry? Oh, lockdown with my best mate, Jerry. So, Jerry is a plum-headed parakeet who actually belongs to my mum, but she's been in a, she's been recovering from surgery and she said, hey, can you take care of Jerry for me? And uh, Jerry's been great. He's probably the most socially anxious bird <laughs> in the entire world that whenever you get within six feet of him, social distancing, of course, he freaks <laughs> oh, the really? F out. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He, I had to get his wings clipped, which some yeah. people may balk at, but just to have him avoid flying away whenever yeah, I get too close good. so that I can kind of bond with him and pick him up and get him to stand on a stick and do all these things. And he's been good. That's he's awesome. getting better. I saw him pecking the shit out of some of your belongings. <laughs> maybe maybe needs a bit more training, but yeah. He was pecking, pecking the shit out of a Lost Boys picture frame. So people who grew up in the 80s or maybe even in the 70s will remember that classic film, The Lost Boys, vampire movie from the 80s with Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. He just decided he'd peck at the uh, wood frame and I had to... Uh, Start yelling at him and say, Jerry, Jerry. And he'd stop and he'd look over and then he'd just go back to action and keep pecking away at it five times. And then eventually he just crawled back into the cage yes. and just started swinging on his yeah. little swing. And I was like, maybe he understood. So we're making progress here. So that's good. So persistence, I think, is the key when training <laughs> birds. Yeah. I like it. Well, too good. Well, we're going to talk about your, your brand new book, Time Rich. We're going to talk about the, the past, present and future of work. But mm-hmm. I guess, well, let's start with the past. What's the, the history of work? How the hell do we get to this uh, situation we're in today? Yeah, great question. And uh, I mean, many of your listeners will know that you know, for 10,000 odd years, we were essentially farmers. Uh, but it wasn't until the 1700s when the Industrial Revolution came along. And during that period of time, I mean, we didn't have occupational health and safety that we do today. We didn't have limits on work. And so people essentially found themselves working 12 plus hours a day. Uh, And that included kids as young as eight years old, 10 year olds, um, who would find themselves in coal mines, uh, hauling just little wheelbarrows full of coal on their knees. And, And what you would often find during this time was one, these kids would get paid about two shillings a day, which is about $5, say, say a week. Um, not only that, but you would have limbs go missing and there would be no mm. compensation. There'd be no insurance, nothing like that. Sorry, kiddo. Uh, I guess you can't work here anymore. Good luck. Uh, God bless, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and that was very much the reality for a good couple of hundred years. And And the nature of this work, as you can expect, whether it's uh, coal mines, whether you're in a wheat field, whether you're on an assembly line, very algorithmic. Mm. You know, you can draw a straight line between input uh, and output. You can draw a straight line between presence and productivity. The more time you spend on a conveyor belt, the more widgets you put into boxes for all of those accounting graduates listening. Um, but in terms of 
getting us to where we are today, it wasn't until the 1850s when Robert Owen, a textile manufacturer from Great Britain, started campaigning and lobbying for this thing called the eight-hour workday. And, and the slogan was eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours play. But it took a good seven decades, actually eight decades, for that to be ratified into law uh, with the Fair Labor Standards Act in the United States uh, becoming a law in 1937. And so in the intervening 83 years, uh, we haven't changed. So we've held firm to this eight-hour workday, even though the nature of work has changed so much in that time. Yeah. And do you reckon like uh, time's an undervalued currency because it was just a pure trade? You'd go to work for eight hours a day. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're slugging around coal, just mm -hmm. a pure trade, whereas it doesn't necessarily have to be that, that way. So do you think we're, if you look at, you know, time or cash, do you think we're undervaluing the time component? Uh, definitely. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I'll quote Seneca, one of my favorite Roman philosophers, who said that people are frugal when it comes to guarding their personal property, their, their money, but not so when it comes to their time, which is the one thing it is right to be stingy with because time, unlike money, cannot be earned back mm. once you spend it. And it's funny because if you ask someone what their hourly rate is, they might say $100. But they might find themselves working till 8 p.m. every night, you know, three hours beyond 5 p.m. And if you say, well, would you pay your boss $300 to leave at 5 p.m.? Yeah. They're going to say no. But effect effectively, that answer shows you that they value the money mm. more than time. Uh, and it's something that I think may have made sense in the Industrial Revolution where I said you could conflate presence with productivity and hours with output. Mm. But the thing about work since then is it's no longer algorithmic or process oriented. For people like yourselves, people like me, it's cognitive work. Uh, our task scope has also expanded. It's not just putting a widget in a box. I'm having to think about lots of different things. Um, but when it comes to cognitive work, to do our absolutely best work, we need to get into the flow state. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi coined that term in 1975. Uh, that was a good which, pronunciation as well. Hey, yeah, uh, you said it really it's, quickly. It's my Eastern <laughs> European heritage. <laughs> say it again. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Far out. <laughs> or you could say Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Well, it's um, say that as yeah, well. Mihal Csiks. Oh, the way I remember it was like Csik sent me high. So it's like, yeah. Mihal Chick sent me high. Well, whenever I'm writing a blog post, uh, when it's in draft, I just write Chick. Like, <laughs> then I go back to it later and copy paste the whole yeah, thing yeah, in because nice. I, I can't remember the actual spelling. That's a different story. <laughs> but when it comes to this flow state, which essentially means we're completely immersed in a task and the rest of the world seems to just fade away, kind of like, you know, riding a, a wave. We were talking about surfing before we went live, um, but writing an article as well. You know, you're completely immersed mm. and the time just fades away. Uh, and you look at your watch, you're like, oh my God, two hours, where did they go? Now, the thing about that flow state is uh, McKinsey ran a 10-year study on executives where they found when you're in that state, you're about five times, up to five times more productive. Uh, but you can only get in that state for about four hours a day. And the way most people go about their work nowadays when they're distracted by their phones, there's notifications on their desktops, uh, people tapping them on the shoulder, Slack messages, Microsoft Teams messages, their internal dialogue. You're lucky if you get into the flow state for 30 minutes because mm. each one of those distractions takes you out of the state and it takes up to 20 minutes to get back back mm. into the zone. So it's um, like like thinking, like learning, Working is another thing we never really learn to do in school and we just kind of get set free into the workforce and nobody's really expended too much mental energy thinking about how we get better at this thing mm -hmm. called work. 
Yeah, the shit they never taught you. Yes. <laughs> It'd be bloody difficult in some corporate cultures. Like you might want to chat about what you went through in your old your old jobs, you know, if you're not the, the manager and mm-hmm. the corporate culture's got it set in stone and um, there's certain ways to do meetings and, and so forth. How do you what do you do in those situations if you're an employee? What did you do, Steve? <laughs> Great question. So, I mean, while I was at you know, big investment banks and, and management consultancies, I'd often find myself sitting in these three-hour-long meetings. And not only that, but there was about 12 people around the table. And despite that, it would usually amount to maybe two people actually driving the conversation and everybody else sitting around. Yeah. Not only were they sitting around, but they were looking at their laptops, so they weren't even present in the meeting Uh, And I asked the question after the meeting, after attending 17 of these meetings and questioning what the value was, why are we doing this? Why don't we just have, I mean, all we're doing is communicating information. Can't we do that through a tool, an app, an email? It's like, oh, no, no, we need everybody to be in this meeting. It's just a necessary evil. Mm. And I mean, few things are necessary evils. (laughs) And what I did in that situation, I, I took a drastic step, which was to yeah, raise some capital, start a company and leave, <laughs> which, which I happened to do while I was at this yeah. organization, but we've talked about that the last time I was on, on your show. Um, but if you don't have the, the liberty of doing that, uh, it really is about trying to influence the way things are, of course. Now, you have the option to uh, either run time-boxed experiments. Because oftentimes, if you're trying to get buy-in from someone further up the chain, their immediate thing is, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I'm getting mm. paid a good, I'm on a good wicket. I don't want to shake the tree, right? But if you go there and say, well, we need to change things. We need to change all of our policies, our ways of work. We need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's going to, it's not going to be received too well. But if mm. you say, hey, I'm working on these projects with four other people over the next four weeks. Can we try, we're going to experiment with different ways of work. Uh, here are our metrics of success. Uh, is this something you would support? Because I, I see that if this does work, it might actually help us become more efficient in different parts of the organization. Um, you could do that, uh, for example. Now, you always want to frame it around what does this person value? Who are you trying to get buying from? So if they value efficiency, making more money, cutting costs, well, guess what? I mean, being productive, getting better at how you use your employees' time, who you're paying upwards of six figures, uh, for the privilege of having them in your office is going to benefit your company. And, and we're already seeing this with the likes of, uh, you know, Netflix, for example, who with six, like 7,000 employees, their market cap is almost 200 billion USD, which compares to their old rival, Blockbuster, who had 60,000 employees <laughs> and a market cap of just 5 billion. But Netflix's way of work, it's very low in process. It's, it's more about empowering people to make decisions and get mm. stuff done. But when you look at most organizations, the ones I've worked for, whether they are startups, whether they are government departments, whether they are large listed corporations, they're not working that way. They're all about outsourcing accountability, spending a lot of time in meetings and just slowing down progress in order to maintain the status quo and protect our existing repeatable business model. But as Seth Godin has taught us, and if he's taught us anything, he's taught us that the assembly line is great at being efficient at producing one thing, but mm. if the world changes, then you're efficient at producing the wrong thing. Right? So. <laughs> that's it. I love it. Well, so that's uh, so sort of the, the structure came from, okay, we've got this time-bound eight hours a day, but even when the work changed, the rules around the work didn't really change so much. Mm-hmm. What about this shift the last six months? We've been working from home 
pretty much for the last six months. How have all these things changed? I think the biggest issues were like the, the interruptions uh, in the workplace. Also, the biggest thing is the hours taking precedence over the, over the actual output. Do you reckon things have got better or worse since people have shifted to working from home? Uh, it's a great question. And I think um, what, you've, what we've seen is that people are actually spending more time looking at screens since mm. they started working from home. Uh, most organizations, you, you'll remember during the early days of the, of the pandemic, uh, Twitter feeds, LinkedIn feeds were flooded with these group Zoom selfies. Yep. It's like, mm. yeah, look at us. We're, we're resilient. <laughs> <laughs> How adaptable are we? Yeah. But all they really did was take a lot of the hallmarks of bad work <laughs> from the office and transplant it online. So instead of face-to-face meetings, it was Zoom. Uh, instead of getting interrupted 50 to 60 times a day, which is the average, uh, with taps on the shoulder, it was Slack messages. Um, and not only Slack messages, but now because you're in Slack all day, you're seeing stuff that isn't even work-related. You're seeing mm. all these giffies or jiffies pop up, depending on how you prefer to pronounce that. Um, and you're wired to that little red dot. Mm. Um, so even if you're working and you see that little red dot pop up, even if you don't click on it, uh, one study out of the University of Michigan found that those micro switches, just noticing something mm. for one tenth of a second, if you have a lot of those throughout your day, it can add up to something like a 40% productivity loss. Now, that depends on the person. If you're super productive, I know myself, if I'm seeing a lot of these little micro switches, man, that can drop me to like 10% of my usual. Uh, so it really depends on the, on the individual, but yeah, absolutely right. So it's gotten worse. Mm. Uh, and I think it's gotten worse, but it has the potential mm. to get better because- It was almost like an opportunity for a clean slate, but as you say, it was just easy to keep doing the same thing just in a different format. Exactly, exactly. So most organizations are just doing the same thing in a different format. And uh, I wrote an article about this called The Five Levels of Remote Work, which is inspired by uh, Automatic. So the company that powers 30% of the internet by virtue of WordPress, uh, founded by Matt Mullenweg. They've got 1,300 employees working across 75 countries, market cap of over a billion dollars, not an office. Um, and their communication, predominantly written. Uh, rather than relying on face-to-face communication, which calls for a meeting. So they're very big on asynchronous communication. Mm. So in this five levels article, uh, you know, at level one, you're in a call center, you need to be at a desktop, you need to be in the office, otherwise you can't get stuff done. Level two is where most companies are today. And this is basically Mm. recreating the office online. Uh, Level three, you're kind of, you're leveraging the medium to get more out of it. So you might have a shared Google Doc up at the same time when you're meeting, updated in real time so that there's no, uh, there's no lost in translation Mm. going on and that people go away doing one thing when they should have been doing another. But level four is really where we want to get to, which is asynchronous communication. So rather than relying on face-to-face meetings, rather than relying on, emails or Slack messages that you're replying to almost instantaneously. It's about responding when it suits you, providing it doesn't compromise the goals of the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means that you have the liberty of starting work uh, when it suits you. You have the liberty of working with teams all over the world and not having them online between nine and five. Uh, and, And the benefit of this is because you're taking out a lot of meetings, because you're taking out a lot of those interruptions, you're giving your people the ability to cultivate more time in the flow state. You're giving them the ability to spend an hour or two working on something, get into that space mm-hmm. of, of deep work, as, as Cal Newport calls it, and actually walk away from their, their day, at the end of the day, feeling fulfilled because they achieved something. Whereas at the moment, so many people can be quite unquote busy all day, uh, but come the end of the day, come the end of the week, feel 
like they just did not move the needle on anything. Um, And it's just unfulfilling. And when you don't have that sense of control over your work, that can lead to, um, to stress, to burnout, to depression. And it just forces people either to just disconnect from their work or to seek out greener pastures elsewhere. Yeah. I think the easiest way to convince yourself you're being productive or you're really just doing jack shit is probably within the email box, inbox. Mm -hmm. And you could spend all day there just hammering away, hammering away. And that's probably could be the biggest trap for certain people. So how do you handle email to get our time back? Yeah, good question. So with our email, uh, just on, and I mentioned stress a few moments ago, there was one study that found that people who check their email more than three times a day experience uh, significantly more stress than those who check it three times or less. Um, so one, batching that email, uh, which is something that Tim Ferriss uh, has, has talked about previously, is one of the best things you can do in that space rather than having your inbox open on your external monitor and having it up all day long, because like I said, those micro switches are costly and you're supposed to work on say a sales presentation, but you see this email come in, which is a lower priority, but it's so much easier to work on that than work on something that's going to require more cognition. So let's jump into that. That lulls me into a false sense of productivity, but I can find myself doing that all day long. So in my case, I tend to check my email three times a day uh, and like morning, midday, and then afternoon. And that's it. Unless there's something of super high urgency, which is maybe once out of every 100 days that I'm waiting for. Um, one other thing you might want to do there, there are tools that can help you with this. So if you're trying to cultivate better habits, obviously you want to create an environment that makes that easy. Uh, so for example, if I don't want to eat that bag of Doritos every night at 10 PM, it's much easier if I don't have that bag of Doritos in my house. So I use a little plugin for my Google Chrome called uh, compose email. So if I need to send an email, I'm not going to go into my mm. Gmail, see all these emails that have come in and then hit compose. I hit this little, uh, widget and it just opens the compose email window and off I go. But I think the deeper thing here is, you know, more philosophically, people have this idea that getting to inbox zero is a badge of honor, but it really just, you know, my interpretation of it is it means you're great at responding to other people's demands <laughs> on your yeah. time at the expense of your own goals. So I think keeping that in mind and then also these evolution. That's an, that's an, I like that. That's a good re, rebrand of the the heroic inbox zero yeah i got it oh. all done but then really that's a that's a good different slant on it <laughs> you've just, oh, you've just been so. the victim of everybody else yeah 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 100 percent. And, and i think also just from an evolutionary perspective uh you know we're wired to conserve energy you know our brains evolved to conserve energy because when we were you know running around naked on the african savannah we didn't know when we'd eat we needed to be prepared to to fight uh fight, fuck, or um, fly, uh, essentially. <laughs> yeah. There's the other one. Um, but <laughs> I like how your brain just remembered the first two. I could, you're obviously not running away much. No. Just, you're either fighting I'm or not you're wired that way, dirty. <laughs> It's that Eastern European bloodline again. <laughs> Balkan Wars, man. Every five years, there's, there's something brewing. Um, but that evolutionary bias may have served us well back then. But nowadays, it shows up when we sit down to our work in the morning or in the afternoon, whenever you want to work it's much easier to check email, to jump on Twitter, to check our LinkedIn mentions, to do all these things at the expense of actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. Um, So by putting away the email, by putting away Slack and just cultivating the ability to get started on a difficult piece of work and commit to the smallest possible unit. So if it is a 1000 word article, just commit to 50 words that don't need to be of high quality, but you'll find per Isaac Newton's first law of motion that once you start 
building a bit of momentum, the amount of energy required to keep going is much less than getting started in the first place. And a simple example nowadays with so many people spending so much time on screens, watching Netflix every night, binging TV shows, they might not be reading as much. But if you've got that book on your coffee table and it's been sitting there for a week or two, man, pick up, commit to reading a page. Commit mm. to one page and reading the rest of the chapter becomes so much easier. Mm. So it's something to bear in mind when it comes to inbox zero and just putting off the more important, higher value work. Mm. Talking about, you mentioned now getting to the zero in the inbox is a badge of honor, which is just a whole bunch of BS. Another big badge of honor, which I think is a little bit twisted, was one of my old jobs, which is also huge bureaucracy that you got a lot of experience in. But it's like the the status you get from working back late for yeah. 10, 11, 12 hour days. I remember one bloke, he was the busiest guy in the office. He'd walk around with a suitcase and you go, how are you going, Julian? I just dropped his name, but didn't drop his surname. Mm-hmm. That's right. He was like, so fucking busy. And he'd just like do his cheek wobble kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, throughout the day, I'd see him do 10 shits a day. And obviously he's like, hanging out in the bathroom stall, come back, it's 9 MSN. Um, so what are your thoughts on on changing the the goals in that sense or, or, or how to change cultures to be more results-oriented so I guess no one's hiding from results? Yeah, look, I think a lot of – it goes both ways. Part of it is the culture informing the people. Part of it is the people informing the culture as well. Um, so if you find yourself working 12-hour days because it is a source of ego validation, it's a socially validated activity, then that probably says something about you and how you choose to spend your time. Um, and perhaps it says that there are other things in your life that you're not working on, that you're neglecting. And instead of working on those things, instead of working on those personal relationships, instead of working on that physical fitness, taking up new interests, it's so much easier to sit at work all day and all night because, hey, that's got status associated with it. I'm working hard. I'm busy. I'm bringing home the the mustard or the bacon or whatever you prefer. <laughs> and, uh, that, that's, that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, the, the other aspect in terms of informing that culture, well, look, it's, there is no one easy answer to that. I mean, if you're part of a team and everybody's working till 7, 8 p.m. every night for you to be the first one to say, hey, mm-hmm. let's let's stop doing this, it might signal that you're not a hard worker um, which, which is funny because on that point, you know, if people tell me like yesterday, I went surfing for the first three hours of the day and then I had brunch, I probably worked three hours yesterday, but people might say, Oh, don't you feel lazy that you should be working harder? I think it's lazy to work 10 hours because you haven't spent the time and energy mm. reflecting on how you work. And then outsourcing those rudimentary processes, automating the things that can be automated, uh, doing away with those low value meetings and cultivating the ability to get into flow for like three or four hours a day, because that, that requires cognition. But mm. if you take that time to put these things into, into action, you don't need to work 12 hours a day. I think it's lazy to work 12 hours a day because you haven't done any of these things and you need to work those hours to make up for all the, all the wasted time. Um, but I'm skirting around your question around the culture. Uh, like I said, you know, part of the thing is let's, let's run experiments, uh, mm. small teams, uh, maybe even one day a week, we try different ways of working or maybe, Hey, let's automate one process. There's this tool I came across, you know, we're sending all of our outreach sales emails manually. Hey, there's this tool called uh, lead IQ. Let's use that for a week or two and see what sort of results we get. Oh man, that worked. It saved us so much time and we got way more, um, 
uh, responses and we've booked more meetings. Wow, what else can we do in this <laughs> yeah, space? I love it. Right? So that you want to create some quick wins that will generate that confidence in, in different ways of work. I like it. Have you heard of the uh, Keynes's 15-hour uh, work week uh, back in the 1930s? No. I only heard about this recently. The dude... Uh, Rutger Bregman, who wrote the book mm-hmm. Humankind, which is coming around the corner, his first book, Utopia for Realists, he was talking about how Keynes back in 1930, so uh, you know, almost 100 years ago now, he was saying that by the time we get to 2030, everyone's going to be working 15-hour work weeks. And the theory was that you know, throughout time, as we got more productive, we worked less and had more leisure. So we're trading in, you know, instead of doing 12 hours a day, then 10 hours a day, then nine hours a day, then eight hours a day, and we're doing more leisure. So we're saying, well, if these productivity trends increase and we continue to become more productive, we'll keep trading in our work time for leisure time. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're about 10 years away from 2030, and I don't think anyone's got to that 15-hour work week yet. We haven't been, we've just been working more. We haven't been trading it in for more leisure. Absolutely right. And I, I think that comes back to part of the culture and part of our own uh, proclivities to just work longer because it's easier to do that rather than reflect and change our ways. Um, I mean, we have seen some experiments play out in the past couple of years. Microsoft in Japan ran a four-day workweek experiment. They've since gone back to five days for some reason, despite the fact that their experiment uh, earned a 40% productivity increase. So I don't know what the thinking was there. Um, but even, yeah, going back to that, that sort of time period, the early 20th century, um, you know, Ford initially at the motor, motor, Ford Motor Company, they used to work nine hour days and then they dropped that from nine to eight hours, doubled everyone's pay. And within two years, they increased their margins by, they doubled their margins. Um, now part of that might've been the fact that the company was relatively new coming off a low base, but it kind of flies in the face of, Hey, we're going to pay you more. Yeah. You're going to work less <laughs> yeah. and we're going to be more productive. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin, he worked five hours a day didn't stop him from coming up with one of the most groundbreaking (laughs) theories of all time um and the berlin conservatory of music uh, where you know violinists and 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 celloists and all sorts of the world's best musicians have come out of there you know they invest four hours a day into deliberate practice and it's been long known long known it's been over there that once you get beyond four hours a day of deliberate practice, your cognition tapers off very quickly and you hit that point of diminishing returns. And I think that's something that's really key to, to double click on as uh, Shane Parrish of, of the Knowledge Project <laughs> likes to say, um, diminishing returns. So you, you're probably familiar with this and I am too, where I'm working on say a presentation, it takes me about four hours to prepare it and for whatever reason, I spend another two hours kind of tweaking it because it's comfortable. I've already done the work. I'm just going to tweak it, uh, update the wording, maybe change this color, change that color, uh, align this image mm-hmm. and so on. And mm-hmm. we waste so much time in, in that sort of state. And when, you know, an example people will remember, if you've seen Forrest Gump, is when he's playing college football and he gets the ball. He's initially running the wrong way and his coach is like, no, no, run the other <laughs> way, run the other way. And because he's this super fast runner because he's raced across you know, America, <laughs> he's just running like hell-bent for leather, makes it to the end zone, scores a touchdown, but he just keeps on running. He keeps on running, full bolt. He takes out one of the, the members of the band, of the marching band, runs into the change rooms. He just keeps on going. And I think that's us. Like when we are approaching a lot of our work, high performers have a really good relationship with that point of diminishing return. So they get to the end zone, they spike the ball, they get back into position. Whereas so many of us will get to that end zone and just keep on running. So being, like it. it's, it's just being intentional with, with everything, right? Not just, not just work, but how you live your life. And you know, one thing you might want to do that could help in this space is 
you know, just something I, I found works in, in life, in business, is just drawing up a quadrant, do more, do less, start doing, stop doing. And then just reflect on how you go about doing things. Reflect on your tasks, how you do your work, how many meetings you're having, uh, sales techniques you're using, marketing channels you're, you're, you're testing, and just, yeah, do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And then over time, it's like compound interest. You end up in a much better position. Yeah, love it. And I uh, understand you did the, the six-hour work day experiment with your employees and and your business and it went kind of went viral that uh, article it as did. well it did yeah it. and did that was that the seed for this book time rich it was indeed it was indeed, it was indeed Jonesy. uh so how did that experiment <laughs> how did the experiment go with the, the six hour work day with your employees no it went, went really well um and the reason we ran that experiment was because i was with my company anchoring to the past in many respects so we did have those 8.30 a.m. till 7 p.m. hours on average and even working once you got home because that's what I was conditioned to believe was required to be successful. And I also felt that as the founder of the company, I needed to set a good example and stay back late and therefore my team would stay back late. Um, of course, the cost of that was that by the time I got home, it'd be like 8 p.m., dark. You'd have very little time to spend on other things. You wouldn't be able to go for a surf unless you wanted to get eaten by a shark. Um, and so after a couple of years of this, I had to do as Mark Twain suggests, and I stopped. I reflected, and I said, well, let's see if there's a better way to do things. And running that six-hour workday experiment acted as a forcing function. You know, Parkinson's law, you give yourself less time to do something, you get it done in less time. But we first define the metrics. So how, how do we measure productivity? So there's different roles of different metrics. Obviously, sales is easy. But if you're in, say, a design role, you might look at your agile story points. We're on an agile shop. You can look at how many story points this person does per week on average and see if that tapers off with the less hours, with the fewer hours. And then the second thing was emotional well-being. How do people feel uh, with, the sh with the fewer hours? Because some people, they, they want work. They want that mm. badge of honor. Um, and so after two weeks, the forcing function essentially meant that we did away with pointless meetings. Uh, we cultivated the ability to get into flow. We automated and outsourced those process-oriented activities. And we found that our productivity was as good, if not higher, than what it was previously. And people were loving it. Um, especially one of, one of my colleagues who had a daughter like during that period of time, a little two-month-old. He got to spend more time with her mm -hmm. being her daddy, essentially. And wrote about it for HBR and it just blew up and it definitely was the seed for, for, for Time Rich. And once that blew up, I spoke to my publisher and we're like, there's probably a book in this. And you know, people say, oh, there's other books out there on productivity. But I think what I've tried to do with this book is hone in on you know, the psychology of work, but also hone in on what companies are doing to sabotage their employees and, and what companies could be doing better rather than just you in a vacuum as an individual, what, what can you do? Too good. Well, uh, so... The uh, question every time is uh, book recommendations. But being, being this the second time, um, do you remember what you said the first time? Probably Marcus like, Aurelius. Yeah, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius, Meditations, <laughs> yeah. uh, Mindset, Carol Dweck and Lean Startup. Yes. A big Eric Reese. So what about uh, in the, how long has it been? Almost two years since we last uh, chatted oh. on the podcast. Any new recommendations for us? Man, I'm probably going to fall victim to uh, the recency bias. Yeah. Um, so some books that I've been reading... Calling Bullshit by Carl Bergstrom. 
Fantastic book, especially in this time of fake news and, and people saying, here's this statistic, here's that statistic, here's this study, and therefore it is irrefut <laughs> irrefutable proof that what I'm saying is absolutely 100% true. Uh, it just opens our eyes to how data can be fudged, how graphs can be fudged, how weasel words can be used uh, against us. And very enlightening book, very enlightening book. Um, outside of, of that, you know, I'm currently reading Haga Kure, which is the way of the warrior, the, the way of the uh, samurai, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, now, it has, it's interesting because it's got lots of interesting philosophical tidbits. Like if you're giving someone honest feedback, first you need to determine that that person is okay to receive mm -hmm. it. Because if that person lacks emotional intelligence, they're just going to become super defensive. Um, so while it's worthwhile giving people feedback because then they can improve, not everybody has done that self-work. But then it would also go on and say things like, uh, you, you can urinate on someone's skull, stamp on them with sandals, and do all these ridiculous things. And that is <laughs> the key to, uh, to wisdom and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that uh, I, don't think, I think that. I was not exactly uh, on point with the, with the paraphrasing there, but... More or less, that's what it says. So the next got, time you walk in a in a in a in a department store and someone's on top whizzing on you, you know what book they've read. Ah, <laughs> uh, totally, totally. But uh, yeah, it's it's funny because every third passage, it's it's not like it's a book you read cover to cover. It's just full of these one line sort of uh, inspirational quotes, if you will. And every second or third one is about beheading someone. So <laughs> it's a bit of a purple cow, I think, right? Like. Throwing it, there's a lot of books that is pure philosophy and amazing like meditations, but this one it's got a bit of that stuff, and then it's just a bit of purple cow enough to bring up on podcasts like this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And no, look, I, I've read a ton of stuff during lockdown, so they're the two that come up right now, mostly because I read them over the last few days. Yeah. <laughs> and another recent project you've underway or a new business is uh, No Filter Media, yep. essentially a podcast. How, what, would, what would I call it? A podcast? Uh, you call it a network. podcast network, network, media network, essentially. Yeah. And uh, how's that going? So there's some, you've got some courageous articles that you put out there in the world, especially in, in today's world. So what's the, what are you trying to do with, with this uh, network? Sure. So a couple of things. I mean, the network is essentially an embodiment of everything I talk about in Time Rich and everything I've talked about on this podcast, which is you can achieve a hell of a lot if you focus on doing the right things and automating, outsourcing the things that are process-oriented. Uh, if I look at your typical media company, hundreds if not thousands of staff, hundreds of writers, and you look at companies like Bauer Media, uh, you look like you look at ESPN last week, sacking several hundred people, uh, Channel 9, Channel 10 here in Australia, and you, you, can, you contrast that with organizations like Netflix who – obviously dominating people's sort of mental real estate with a fraction of the employees, a fraction of the cost. So with no filter media, it's a, it, it kind of piggybacks of Tim O'Reilly. Uh, he wrote a book called what's the future and why it's up to us. And he was a founder of the two point web 2.0 movement, the open source movement. And in that book, he proposed a business model for the new economy, which was all about crowdsourcing uh, on demand talent automation, algorithms, magical user experience. And through by leveraging these building blocks and by leveraging, say, no-code apps, we've been able to put up a media network that has six podcasts on it, about a 1,000 articles, um, all in the space of about three months. Um, and the aim is that if we 
practice what we what I preach in Time Reach, we can pump out hundred times more content, and I'm not ever exaggerating, than an organization that has a thousand employees um, with way less people, way less cost. Now, what that does is because our cost of service is much lower, when we're in the market for advertising and whatnot, we can undercut our competitors big time and still earn a very healthy margin. Um, and so, yeah, the aim with no filter is to sign up about 50 or so podcasts. Uh, we've signed up the likes of uh, Andrew Gaze and Leonard Copeland, former NBL players. I'll say former NBA players. I think Gaze had a few games and Copes had about two seasons for the Clippers. <laughs> you only need one game to call yourself a former NBA player hey, as well. Gaze yeah. is actually an NBA champion, yeah, believe yeah. it or not. He mm-hmm. sat on the bench all season when the Spurs <laughs> won, won the, uh, the ring uh, about 15 years ago. But nonetheless, he still has a ring. Um, and the other big podcast we signed up is um, Mick Wall's Get Your Rocks Off. So Mick Wall, is um, he spent 43 years in the rock journalism game. You know, he founded, co-founded Krang Magazine, Classic Rock Magazine. Uh, he's been in the in the trenches for Rolling Stone, Mojo, and, and he's published about 20 books on Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Iron Maiden, Metallica, you name it. And he's just got this tell-all podcast. And and for us, it's that's what it is. It's working with big names who can bring the content. We bring the production, the marketing, all that sort of stuff, but we don't do it in a very sort of hands-on way. A lot of it's automated and we're doing it in a way where we can pump out a lot of content with so much so little import compared to your typical media company and i don't know that's a bit of a brain dump on on no filter and where it's at right now yeah absolutely love it too good well where where should we direct people if they want to check out steve-o if they want to check out the books if they want to check out the new the new network yeah, sure. So uh, they can check me out uh, at steveglaveski.com. That's G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. And nofilter.media is the best place to, to learn about that. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. If you go to Steve Glaveski, you'll find my company's social media profiles, all that good stuff. But uh, try not to spend too much time on social media per, <laughs> per what I talk about in my book. But I have found myself going down a few Twitter rabbit holes over the past past few weeks being in lockdown here in Melbourne. But uh yeah, Too it's, good. it's not a well, very healthy coming, place. This has been coming since we had uh, Kevin Rudd in the podcast. What was that? <laughs> was that 2018? Uh, yeah, Two years ago. Like and Ruddy uh, finished off with a bit of Mozart, I think, with a bit of classical oh, piano. Yeah. And Steve, you said, could, you, said next time, Ruddy. you said next time the, uh, you're on the show, you've got something for us. I, I do. So, uh, look, I'm a mediocre singer and guitarist at the best of times. And when I try to do these things together, I definitely... <laughs> You got become notes. even more got mediocre me? if there is such a thing. <laughs> I have lyrics. Oh, nice. I have lyrics. Oh. So I write, I write you boys a, Oh, that's right. Uh, a song. <laughs> that's for you. <laughs> I write oh, you boys a song. So I can't take credit for the music. The music oh, actually comes from a 1980s blues rock band called oh, Cinderella. Nice. Oh, yeah. But the lyrics are completely my own. Oh, so fantastic. I hope I don't screw this up. If I do, we can re-record it. And I'll, I'll send you a copy that I record at home and you can splice it in. So... Here we go. Already fucked it. I put on my headphones, tune into what you will learn for a good book review. Or maybe an interview Jonesy 
He broke a promise. Don't know what he was thinking when he said he'd stop drinking. <laughs> It's what you, what you will learn. Yes. It's a podcast about books from Melbourne. It's a podcast about books. Robert Greene or Seth Godin. I'm always learning something new. But I'll never have Adam Ashton's big IQ. <laughs> Influence and the black swan. It really didn't take me long to make myself look like I'd actually read the book. <laughs> It's what you will learn. It's a podcast about books from Melbourne. It's a podcast about books. We had to practice that one a bit more, but there That's you go. Well, Steve, we, we, next time we come on your podcast as well, mate, we, we also sing a few songs if you listen to the first Back few seasons. Back in the days. I look we'll, we'll rip one out. Fantastic, boys. This has been fun. Love oh, it. Cheers, Steve. At the end of every month, we send out a, an email, which is a recap of the month just gone, where we give a bit of our brutal feedback, a bit of brutal honesty. We give the books a rating out of 10, where you can see what Adam Ashton thought of the book and you can see what Adam Jones thought of the book. And we also give you a teaser as to the four or five books that are coming up next. So if you want to be one of the first to know which episodes are coming up next, sign up to the email list where at the end of each month, you'll get a recap email. Head to whatyouwillearn.com slash email.